welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, and more. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Monica Trinidad. Thank you for listening. All right. Hello. Welcome to episode 21. Um, Hey, I'm here with uh, Paige May. Say hey. Hi. Hi. We're both kind of sick. Mm -hmm. Paige's voice is a little, if you've heard in episode 19. I, I sounded beautiful. You sounded great. You sounded great. I did. I like was listening to it on the airplane, like on my way back and from New York, and uh, all of a sudden it was your voice, and it was like, whoa! I was like, Debbie, did you hear Paige's voice? It was. It was yeah. It, yeah, but I'm glad you're feeling better now. I am. I'm much okay. Better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. So we are here today with the amazing Andrea Ritchie. Um, we're at her place right now, her beautiful, gorgeous place um, with Joey Mogul. And I see my artwork on the wall. I see the ocean. It's, it's just a great place. I love it. I love recording here. Um, so Andrea Ritchie's going to talk about her book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. We are so excited for you to be here. Thank you so much. Before we get into our um, our big interview with Andrea. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership, which is run by Mia Henry, Lisa Brock over in Kalamazoo College. Um, They do amazing work. Um, They're actually our one and only sponsor that we have for the Lit Review, so we really love them. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about the work that they're doing. So uh, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership is an initiative out of Kalamazoo College, and their mission is to develop and sustain leaders in human rights and social justice through education and capacity building. actually just welcomed aboard Justin Danzi as their new program coordinator and he's an incredible writer and young activist. He runs Black Diaspora Project. Um, It's an online blog and store that attempts to forge reconnection between millennial members of the African diaspora. Um, It's run by two groups of friends, one in the Midwest and one in Uganda. Um, So check it out if you get a chance. The Argus Center also hosts this amazing online resource center called the Praxis Center, which you can find at kzoo.edu slash praxis. So the Arcus Center also has this amazing activist in residence program, and they host activists from around the world on campus for one or two weeks to bring the Kalamazoo College community new perspectives and approaches to social justice work um, that are informed by current movements and campaigns for change. Um, so thank you, Mia Henry, Lisa Brock, um, and everyone else at the Arcus Center for being the Lit Review's one and only supporting sponsor and for sharing our podcast episodes with the world through the Praxis Center. So here we are with Andrea Ritchie. Um, we want to, we ask this to everybody at the beginning of every episode. Um, we want to hear who you are, even though everybody knows who you are. What do you do and why? Those are big questions. But um, <laughs> first of all, I just wanted to thank you both so much for having me on. I feel like this is the um, media outlet that I most wanted to have a chance to be on um, and that I'm most excited about uh, because I have so much respect for you all and the work that you do, but also because I really appreciate the model you have around engaging activists around books and just really going back to reading and thinking about that as we um, do our work as organizers and activists. So um, super honored, dope, excited, and nervous. Um, And... Um, also, want to appreciate the Arca Center for Social um, Justice Leadership because Praxis actually published um, a couple of blogs uh, of mine on the issues we're talking about today. They're in the book um, long before other folks were willing to do it or or were um, as open to doing it. So they really are on the cutting edge in many ways yes. of social justice issues. Absolutely. So I'm grateful for them. Yay! So who am I? Um, <clears throat> I'm a researcher, writer, advocate, activist, organizer. Um, currently, my job title is researcher in residence at, on race, gender, sexuality, and criminalization at the Barnard Center for Research on Women. Um, I've been a Soros Justice Fellow. You're being humble, like <laughs> many of our guests, but you are an amazing um, activist, organizer, um, litigator. Like you've just been doing some incredible work around Say Her Name. 
Um, we are honored to have you in Chicago now um, and very excited about that and, and just seeing, you know, all of the incredible work you're going to bring to Chicago. Um, and we are really excited about this book. You have a forward by Angela Davis and Miriam Kaba. And then I am <laughs> like, deeply blessed. Like how to like, that is just, yeah, exactly. And I, so I am just so excited about this. So the book, uh, when is the book actually coming out? It's coming out on Tuesday, on Tuesday. August 1st, okay. so very soon. So hopefully you're listening to this and you go and buy the book tomorrow. Uh, but just so folks know, so on the cover is our friend Janae Bonsu holding up a sign that says, Black women, girls, and trans folks get locked up and shot down too. But the title of the book is Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. So why did you write this book? And... I'm curious when you started writing it because it feels very relevant to write now, but I, I suspect that it took you a very long time to write. Um, and so how long did it take you and why did you, why did you uh, have the idea um, to write this? It was actually Jill Petty's idea for me to write the book. Jill Petty was my editor at Beacon Press, but at the time uh, that we first, uh, I first started it, which was back in 2007, 10 years ago, um, she was an editor at South End Press, and we had just finished The Color of Violence, the Insight Anthology, um, which was an anthology of pieces, essays, poems, um, and writings around different forms of violence against uh, women of color, and I wrote a chapter on law enforcement violence against women of color, and it, I realized at that point that I had a lot of information that I'd gathered over the years, and that I it was hard to kind of condense it into one essay, and Jill, who was working with us on the editing, said, look, this thing is a whole book. You need mm -hmm. to write a whole book on this, mm -hmm. and so at that point, I entered into a contract with South End Press to write the book, um, and started it in 2007, 2008, originally in slightly different form. I was actually originally going to write each chapter with an activist who was working on the issues related to the topic. Um, and then I got kind of distracted by doing the work itself and mm -hmm. uh, doing the litigation, organizing, and advocacy, um, and sort of kept working on it half-heartedly. I did another chunk of work in 2010 on it. And then, unfortunately, South End Press closed, so um, I kind of lost steam, uh, but then picked it up again in 2015, and Jill by then was at Beacon, and um, that's how it came to be in its present form. And I do feel like it is probably best that it came out now, because mm -hmm. actually I feel like it's getting a, it's landing in a different environment than it would yeah. have in 2007, exactly. and mm -hmm. um, I think is going to have more impact, and I feel like I've also learned a tremendous amount over those last 10 years. I sort of had done a lot of work in the preceding 10 years. Um, before I started writing in 2007, but I learned so much more in the in the meet, in the interim ten years. Not just about these issues, but just my political analysis evolved tremendously during that time. And um, so I feel like it's this is the right time and the right place for the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you did you write it with a goal of some kind of intervention? Oh, and it sounds like maybe that. Oh yeah. The possibility of that intervention has changed, but yeah, what what was your goal? Oh god, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I was uh, thinking about this earlier today. I mean, I. I because someone asked me, you know, what, why did you start writing it? And it, or what started me off working on these issues? And it just, I came of age um, as an activist around the time of the Rodney King beating uh, and have very vivid memories of watching that across my TV screen, but then also, um, and then also when the first acquittal came down, being one of hundreds of people who poured into streets of Toronto in outrage, and then also obviously seeing much uh, greater or bigger rebellion um, in many cities across the United States. And at the time, you know, with my community of black women and women of color in Toronto, we were also talking about other incidents that involved black women and women of color. And in the couple years that followed, continued to do that. And we talked about those cases, but then I realized this larger conversation that had been sparked by Rodney King and, you know, the conversation about driving while black and police brutality only focused on men. Mm -hmm. And um, those men were also only imagined to be straight and not trans. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't understand how that disconnect, well, I, I could understand, but <laughs> that disconnect was becoming increasingly troubling for me. And so I think at some point, I just kind of became obsessed with gathering every story, documenting every snippet in a newspaper or in a testimony or in a city council hearing or something or every conversation I had with um, black women and women of color about police violence they'd experienced and just gathering it up and um, continue to do that over years such that in some ways what prompted me to write the book um, page is I wanted to get rid of the 10 boxes of stuff in my apartment <laughs> that, that that are the subject matter of this book. Then there's like 
literally like little newsletters from an organization that I picked up in 2003 that had mention of one case involving a woman mm. or, you know, um, like a, you know, a clipping of a newspaper, the same thing, one mention of a case involving a woman and um, flyers and books and, and transcripts and just wanted to put it all in one place so I could access it in some mm-hmm. ways. You know, I feel like I write the books that I just so I can put everything I know about something in one place and find it, but then also, and share that with other people, but um, also the books that I want to read. And just over the years, it continued to be shocking to me that there was no book that talked about police violence against black women and women of color. And so um, I felt like I wanted to to make the intervention, to and to make the intervention to pull it all together in one place to so that we could stop talking about it as individual cases. Mm-hmm. So we could stop being like, oh, there's like, oh, here's one case that happened here, but now back to the regularly scheduled conversation right. with the usual, you know, focus, the usual um, narrative. And mm-hmm. then, oh, another case pops up and we'll go back to the usual conversation. And I, I felt like if, if there was enough in one place that maybe that would actually change, like shift the narrative, hopefully expand it more permanently and more mm-hmm. sustainably going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I would say, I wrote the book as a gift to... Um, amazing young activists like yourself so that you wouldn't have to read through the 10 boxes of crap in my living room and and the sisters from Asada's daughters so that you could look at it and be like, mm-hmm. okay, we see what's been happening for the last 20 years or so. We'll take this part because we find it useful. We don't find that useful. Um, but I found myself in a lot of rooms of activists where we were doing timelines um, around police violence against black women of color and resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, one at the Institute of the Insight Conference that was here in Chicago in 2014, another one at the Allied Media Conference. And people knew a lot kind of about like what had happened to black women and women of color kind of post-2014. Um, but there was, and they maybe knew some stuff, you know, from earlier on in history. But there was this period in the middle, like the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, where they were like, oh, we never heard of all those cases. And we certainly never knew that there was organizing around them. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, oh, look at this insight toolkit on police violence against women of color and trans people of color. We never knew this existed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's definitely dated. And there's some stuff in there that might not be useful anymore. But I feel like people were in some ways like really um, encouraged and, and excited to learn more about what had come before 2014, what had come before Say Her Name. And so, um, that felt like an important thing to kind of put it together and be like, here, you know, mm-hmm. kind of toss it out into the world and say, you know, take or leave whatever is useful, but this is my contribution to this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. So walk us through this book, because like how, how did you just categorize and, and summarize all of these stories? Like how did you put them like chapter by chapter? Like how did you arrange that? Basically the book looks at this issue from as many different angles as I mm-hmm. could think about mm-hmm. and through as many different lenses as I could think about. So I, it starts off through a historical lens because I feel like I learned from you know black feminist mentors um, in Toronto and here, um, people like Angela, Mariam Kaba, but also like um, Beverly Bain, who was one of my early black feminist mentors in Toronto. Um, that, you know, obviously the history and the way that black women's identities have literally been shaped through chattel slavery and colonialism, the way indigenous women's identities have been shaped by colonialism, um, informs present day police interactions still. And so um, it felt important to start there and look through a historical lens to see how much of that sort of traveled and translated into the present day. I guess over the years, I just, these sort of themes sort of slid into place as I was trying to make sense of what I was amassing in those 10 boxes. And so I started to think about different ways policing is organized and how they each affect women. So for instance, there's been a lot of conversation about the war on drugs, and particularly as I was sort of um, coming to the US in the early 90s, the impact of the war on drugs on black women and women of color was much more central in the conversation. But people weren't talking about the policing interactions as much as they were talking about the sentencing, right? And the long mandatory minimums that black women and women of color were doing, um, black women and indigenous women particularly. and but no one was talking about the police interactions that were contributing to that, so I started trying to look into that. Um, And then as broken windows policing was also sort of something that was really prevalent in the early 90s, um, particularly in New York City as I moved there in the early 2000s, I kept starting to asking, well, how is this affecting women and how is this intersecting with the war on drugs? And then immigration enforcement obviously is something that has um, waxed and waned over time, but definitely over the last two decades has been ramping up um, dramatically, or the last decade has been ramping up dramatically. And so I wanted to think about how that was happening. And then of course I was in 
the U.S. in D.C. and then in New York post 9-11 and really wanted to think about how the war on terror um, was impacting Muslim, Asian, um, South Asian and uh, Muslim, sorry, and Middle Eastern and Arab women. And so thought I would lead the book off with kind of looking where we're already looking, right? So we're already looking at the war on drugs, we're already looking at broken windows policing, we're already looking at immigration enforcement, we're already looking at, at the war on terror, but we're not looking at how women are impacted in those situations as much, particularly when it comes to policing interactions. So I wanted to dive in there. And then there's been a lot of conversation about the school to prison pipeline. Certainly Mariam, for instance, has been a huge contributor to that conversation. And Mariam has actually been a huge contributor to centering girls in that conversation, mm -hmm. black girls in that conversation, which is not always um, where that conversation starts or ends, right? Mm -hmm. um, so definitely, and then drawing a lot on the work of Monique Morris in her latest book, Push Out, um, wanted to center girls' experiences of um, police in schools. Um, and then police interactions with people who are either labeled as having a disability or are in mental health crisis are actually a significant proportion of police interactions and particularly where women of color are concerned. I spent the day today sort of going through a database um, that will be on a website um, that uh, goes with the book and of cases, some of most of all the ones that are in the book plus additional ones that didn't make it in. Um, and just so many of those cases involve women, particularly the fatal cases, involve women in the midst of a mental health crisis. And so, and then many other cases involve women um, with physical disabilities or other disabilities. And so it felt really important to look at it through that lens, and that's not a lens that often people examine um, uh, police violence through. And then it felt also critical to look at how policing is gendered, and right. how, particularly how it's racially gendered. And then looking at the forms of police violence that take place in racially gendered contexts that we don't often think about. So police sexual violence is something that we almost never talk mm -hmm. about in the context of police violence, but it's according to the right-wing Cato Institute, mm -hmm. the second yeah. most frequently mm -hmm. um, reported form of police misconduct after excessive force. Mm -hmm. It's not the second most frequently talked about. Um, and actually, that's an area where there's actually more social science research about women's experiences than anywhere else. And a lot of it's done by current and former law enforcement officers. So they know it's a problem. Mm. They will tell you that the data that we have will show it's just the tip of the iceberg. One of the books I read in researching this is Norm Stamper's book, the former chief of police from Seattle. I, I know, it was hard. <laughs> I read the whole thing. Um, thank you. It yeah, was, thank yes, you for exactly. That, for us. that was my gift also. <laughs> Um, but, you know, he calls police sexual violence, you know, police law enforcement's dirty little secret mm -hmm. and talks openly about, you know, how prevalent it is and, and why. Mm -hmm. So that's, I felt like talking about that, policing gender lines, how police, we think of police as policing like the lines of race, the lines of class, that's pretty well understood, right? But we don't think about them literally policing the lines of gender in our bodies. Mm -hmm. I think we think maybe more about that these days, we're talking about, you know, these laws like purporting to govern how trans and gender nonconforming people use public spaces, and particularly public restrooms, we don't think about how the police are the ones enforcing that. Mm -hmm. And whether there's a law or not, the police are the ones enforcing the gender binary mm -hmm. um, in the ways that they interact with people around ID, in the ways they interact with people around bathroom use, and um, the ways they interact with people um, in terms of just inflicting physical violence on people that they perceive to be gender nonconforming and therefore inherently quote unquote disorderly and then that how that intersects with broken windows policing um, and so on. So it felt like looking at taking that angle to it and seeing how police literally police the lines of gender mm -hmm. um, historically in the present day and then how that's linked also to how they police sex and sexuality. Um, gender nonconformity is understood as also sexual deviance which then produces things like walking while trans, um, where police officers assume that if you're gender nonconforming, you're automatically sexually nonconforming or sexually quote unquote deviant and assume that you must be engaged in some kind of sexually deviant act. Um, but then also just looking at how women who dress in a particular way, um, particularly black women or native women and Latina women and Asian women, um, are read by police officers as automatically also being engaged in sexually deviant acts, even if they're just standing literally on a corner, mm -hmm. right? So looking at policing sex and gender together felt really um, critical. And then also looking at motherhood, which is another very gendered site of mm -hmm. policing um, that we don't talk about, whether it's police violence against pregnant women or the ways in which child welfare enforcement is about racial profiling and police violence too. And lastly, looking at the final gendered kind of context of police violence is when police are actually answering calls for help. 
And so we've been talking about that a lot recently around the case of Charlena Lyles, but also what I was finding in all this research I was doing was that an alarming number of cases of police violence against women of color were happening when police were responding to calls for help when women were experiencing violence um, or trans people were experiencing violence. And it felt like that required some of its own attention. And then lastly, you know, I, I made every effort in writing the book to have every chapter not just describe the problem with the cases and the studies, but also to share some examples of resistance that I had mm -hmm. either been a part of or had the opportunity to witness or learn about um, that centered those experiences. And then, but also felt like it was important for the book to end um, with that as well. So that it closes the chapter on resistance and then some final thoughts. Mm -hmm. So uh, is it fair to say, so, so the book kind of hooks you with the cover um, with this language of two, right? Like that it happens to us too, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and it's, a, it's, it's focusing, it's tapping into uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, centering of specifically police murdering people with impunity. Uh, but then it sounds like the book is actually, it's saying, yes, we also are getting shot down and killed. And if we want to understand police violence, we actually, like, if we center black women um, and women of color, we actually see a much broader, uh, there, there's much more different variations of violence that the police are engaged in every day. Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. It's about starting with, let's look where we're already looking. Right. That happens to us too. Mm -hmm. And it's not a two in a like competitive sense, right, but it's right, in a sense right. of like, you can't leave us out of a conversation right. about things that are happening to us. Like, yeah. you just can't do that. Mm -hmm. We're not going to allow you to do that. And I feel like post-Ferguson, the leadership on the ground, like the two of you, the women on the front lines of Ferguson, the women on the front lines of BLM are just saying, we're just not letting that happen anymore. Mm -hmm. And and we now run shit. So yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just not going to happen anymore. <laughs> and it's not like black women and women of color haven't always run movements for police accountability and resistance to police violence. Um, it's just a, a different moment in mm -hmm. terms of um, our ability to assert that our experiences are going to be part of the conversation as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. um, but then, yes, it's saying, and now I'm going to take you on this journey of looking also where we're not already looking mm -hmm. and expanding the lens, because I do feel like when the standard of what police violence is, is a shooting of an unarmed person, mm -hmm. then, yeah, we're going to not see as much of what's happening to black women and mm -hmm. women of color as if we're looking somewhere else and maybe looking at sexual harassment being a standard of police violence. Then we're going to see a whole lot more, a whole different composition of um, people who are targets. And that doesn't mean that black men and men of color, queer and not queer, trans and not trans, aren't also targets of police sexual harassment and violence. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually another thing that happens is that when we start looking right. where women are, then we start seeing new forms of violence that actually apply across the board that mm -hmm. no one's talking about or that people rarely talk about. And so it opens doors for better understanding of what's happening to entire communities. Yeah. Right. Well, and then I, so I can think of now, you know, dozens of examples of how people have organized in really powerful, inspiring ways around police murders of folks. Uh, but I know very few examples of how folks have successfully organized, whether or not it leads to a cop going to jail or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, by successful, I mean it, it, it pushes conversations, it makes, I don't know, it builds power in community, right? Um, what has successful resistance looked like when we look at these other forms of police violence that are taking place? Um, you know, what have people, how have people organized around sexual violence that the police are doing against black women and women of color? I, mean, I think the organizing that Oklahoma artists, Oklahoma City Artists for Justice did around the Hold Skull case is one really prominent example of folks being like, wait a minute, we're hearing these stories, we're hearing a defense of this officer, we're hearing no one speaking and standing or being next to these um, survivors, we have to stand with these survivors because it could have been us if we had driven through that neighborhood at that time of night. And, um, and really showing up in court hearings, showing up um, in media, showing up with anti-violence groups and sort of being like, hey, YWCA, um, you say you're about violence against women. Here's some cases of violence against women. What's, what are we doing now? You know, mm -hmm. and um, so really showing up in those ways. Um, 
I feel like there's there's other creative examples I've heard of. I, I didn't talk about it, I don't think in, maybe I talked about it in this book, but I definitely talked about it in my article in the um, Color Violence Anthology of a group in Brooklyn called Sista to Sista of Young Black and Brown Women who started video documenting police sexual harassment of young mm-hmm. women in their neighborhood. And they had a hard time catching it on film, and that's part of the problem, right? Yeah. Like, it happens really fast. Mm-hmm. You can't really tell it's happening until you see a young woman walk away from an encounter with a police officer with a particular kind of look on her face, mm-hmm. but, you know, maybe then she doesn't want to talk about mm-hmm. it. Like, it's not something you can document as a cop watch very easily, right. but they did their best. And then they combined that with a public event where they also acted out skits of things, experiences they'd had mm-hmm. with police officers that were, like, sexual harassment. And they screened the video that they made on the wall opposite the police precinct, actually, oh. <laughs> um, at a street fair yeah. and did the skits so at dope. a street fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is exactly why yeah. I wrote this, yeah. because I feel like a, you should know this, yeah. and, and you should know them, right? Yeah. And even though they're not active um, at this time, because mm-hmm. I feel like it's like a your siblings in the mm-hmm. in the work or, or um, you know comrades and so they did this and the community was outraged and it was very embarrassing for the precinct mm-hmm. and um, it also led to other conversations because wow. then the young women were like we should start projecting exactly videos oh, that's onto their buildings exactly yeah. exactly no this is why that see yeah. the book is working uh, <laughs> success um, so so they did that, but then also the conversations that sparked was that the you know the the community members, the young men in the community were like, "This is fucked up. Like, you know, you just can't be doing this to our sisters, and this is you know the man." And they were really mad, and they were really amped. And then the young women were like, "You know, you do this to us too, right? Mm. You don't have a gun. You don't have the power to arrest me. So it's a different experience." But uh, can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, maybe the conversation wasn't so lit anymore, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it wasn't so hype anymore. And right. I feel like that. That's part of the reason that we don't hear about it, and um, because sexual violence just generally is mm-hmm. hidden and suppressed. Um, people don't report it when it happens, when the perpetrator is anybody, much mm-hmm. less you know the people you're supposed to report it to. But um, so that's that's an example of organizing I found that was really amazing because it also led to a whole other kind of conversation about just the spectrum of violence that young mm-hmm. women of color were experiencing in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think other than that, it's people organizing for prosecution, which and and that tends to happen more in cases of police sexual violence, mm-hmm. and so people kind of have the illusion that that's the answer to it. But I can guarantee you that um, the fact that Daniel Holsclaw is doing 263 years in prison is not doesn't mean there aren't many right. more Daniel Holsclaws right. running around right, right now, um, undeterred. So I feel like we need to actually think about different responses mm-hmm. um, obviously you know he should be fired they should be fired we should figure out how to hold people accountable in those ways um, but we need to start thinking about also prevention around police sexual violence and then that's where I think the more interesting conversations are I feel like I've had been having a fight with myself over the last few years where I've been working to try and come up with model policies around police sexual violence because my research as a Soros Justice Fellow found that more than half of police departments have like no policy at all mm-hmm. that says mm-hmm. a police officer should not be sexually harassing, extorting sex, <laughs> or raping people oh, yeah. while on the job, right? So my, that's my response, right? I'm like, that is ridiculous. So I'm like, at a minimum, they should have a policy mm-hmm. and they should have things in place that are about prevention and detecting and, and accountability, right? But when, as you look at history, which right. we do in this chapter, police actually are sexual violence. And right. so, um, is a policy really going to stop it? Mm-hmm. Or is it just going to make it harder for Joey and I to sue right. later? Which is actually, I think, the outcome. Mm-hmm. Right? So then, what's the answer? But I feel like, yeah. or is it harm reduction? So this is the argument I'm having with myself. Yeah. Am I doing harm reduction? <laughs> Am I doing a, non-refor- a non-reformist reform, taking power away from the police to enact the sexual violence while we fight for a different world? Or am I just pinkwashing them mm-hmm. um, in a particular way by being like, oh, if you adopt this policy, then we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't know who won that argument. It happens on the regular in my head. and uh, But I feel like we need to figure out what. Mm-hmm. We need to do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass it over to you in a second. But I, I recently, something, that, so that's kind of been playing in my head a lot. So I organized in Washington Park. Um, and there was a woman who found me a couple weeks ago. And she, uh, her home had burned down. And she she just needed a couple bus passes. But um, she was, t- she starts opening up to me about how um, 
she so she's a sex worker and so and there's no shelters there between cottage and western for women unless you have small children mm-hmm. um and so she ha- is put outside like that I means she's mm-hmm. outside and so mm-hmm. she, and then she gets you know she's a black woman on the corner mm-hmm. um uh, it does engage in sex work, but the cops, that's not even really why they're right. picking her up. They, you know, and then they threat, they, they give her an ultimatum, like, you know, uh, they rape her or she goes to jail or sometimes both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but her, she was demanding a shelter and she was really pissed off at the community. It, it was like, she was clearly pissed at the police, but it was, it reminded, so, and then, and then a few weeks after that, uh, I think it's episode 19, we talked to Kathy Cohen and she's talking about um, the boundaries of blackness and, and the HIV AIDS crisis and how, and, 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 and both in that interview, but also the reasons why I wish we recorded people after the interview and what they say after, she's talking about how she wants to push the movement to, yeah, think about the power that we have in our community, right? And I think you, you hinted that right. earlier when you are talking about it starts with these black women being like, oh, we got to protect our sisters, like this isn't okay. And then it's like, well, this is, it's, you're doing it too, right? Um, and that there's something about how we might be able to organize in ways that don't center the police actually and mm-hmm. actually like, okay, what do our, what's happening in our communities? What do we have control over? And how is power playing out? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's not really a question so much as like I don't. It's not, and it's definitely not an answer. Um, but this is happening in real time, right? Uh, this woman, she was like pissed, and she was like kind of putting it on me, and kind of putting it on everybody. It was, uh, and I'll never forget that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I feel like that's real. I feel like women who have been like her, who are targets mm-hmm. every night of being given a choice yeah. between giving a blowjob and spending a night in a jail cell, or mm-hmm. and probably having up having to do both, right? Yeah. Um, are, are genuinely like I, I'm not going out for another march, right? Um, around someone else's case yeah. when I see no one right. standing up for me in this situation. Y'all mm-hmm. leaving me out here yeah. to have this happen every night, and this is not part of the conversation. Yeah. So I feel like I hear that that rage often too, and um, and it's what leads me to have the fight about what's going to reduce the harm. And I think the answer, the real answer, whether a policy is or not, is about taking away the power that police officers have to extort sex, rape, sexually assault people, mm-hmm. and giving people the things they need to stay out their way, yeah. <laughs> to stay away from their clutches, yeah, exactly. which in, in this woman's right. case is housing, yeah. right, mm-hmm. employment, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, you can't stop being a black woman, right? But, right? right. So I feel like that's that's where we have to right. deal the other part, which is taking the power away but from police. But when she's mm-hmm. saying, when she's asking for help and people ignore her and then they right. see a black man ask for a dollar and he gets a dollar, right. she's like, that's bullshit, right? right. Mm-hmm. And that's on y'all. And right. I'm like, Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so how does this book affect change on a local and national scale, right? How how does this book move people, right? Like like Paige is talking about, like in in the community, right? Like how will this book um, affect change in our minds and our hearts, right? Um, Just like, you know, because Angela Davis um, had mentioned in the forward that this really reminds her of the We Charge Genocide Petition, of, of just how it reads, right? And also... Um, and also the Ida B. Wells Red Record, right? It's like a litany of all of these story, story after story um, of, of, of white vigilantes and, and racist police violence, right? And so, so how does like, something like this um, affect our communities and how, how does this move our communities forward? Yeah, no, I think that um, one thing I was gonna say to you earlier when you were saying you hadn't quite read it all, I was gonna say read with care. And mm-hmm. I tell all your readers to read with care. It's not something you sit down and just digest mm-hmm. in one reading. Yeah. It's There's a lot of violence in it. And I really struggled with mm-hmm. how much violence to include, how much for it to be a litany of cases that, um, uh, wanting to make sure that with a litany of cases was framed and, and seated in a broader analysis so it wasn't just a litany of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how successful I was, but... Um, but then also uh, asking questions beyond like beyond this list of names and cases and, and really difficult things to read that happen to real people. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this change the conversation? And so that's what I hope the book accomplishes. I hope it really presses people to be like, wow, it, it, now that I'm on page 217, I'm going to guess that this is not a one-off thing, right? right? Like, I've now been reading about this through all these different angles, affecting all these different communities, all these different kinds of women and girls and and trans folk. Um, I'm going to guess this is not a one-off problem. Mm -hmm. So now the challenge at the end is really how does this change the way you think about policing? When we're having a, a conversation about body cameras, how does what you just read for 300 pages change how you think about that? Are body cameras recording when 
um, people are, uh, there's always this question about whether they should record people who are, vic- are victims of crime. Mm-hmm. And the answer is usually no, because privacy reasons, mm-hmm. because it will intimidate people, because et cetera. Well then, so then body cameras actually wouldn't have helped in Charlene Lyle's case because they would have turned it off because she was reporting a crime. <laughs> so mm-hmm. actually, you know, how does this change how we think about what the answers are? If most of the police violence that happens to women happens in private settings, in homes, in clinics, in hospitals, in welfare offices, in places where cop watchers aren't hanging out or people aren't able to just pull out a cell phone. And people do record a lot for themselves in those situations. Mm-hmm. And I really want to lift an, up and honor that. But then how does that change how we start documenting or what kind, how, where we start looking or how we support people in documenting their own experiences of police violence in settings where maybe they're giving birth, right? Or maybe their child is being taken from them or maybe it's a, sec, it's a sting, a prostitution sting. How do we, um, or it's the cop coming up to this woman on the corner and offering her those two choices. Like how, how do those realities shift how we document police violence, how we understand police violence, what the solutions are that we advocate for, um, what kinds of things we demand in our community. That's what I hope the book accomplishes. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know yet if it's gonna do it, mm-hmm. but that's mm-hmm. that's what I, I really hope it literally shifts something in people's heads so they can no longer think about mm-hmm. policing mm-hmm. Um, in ways that are exclusive mm-hmm. of black women, women of color, mm-hmm. trans and gender nonconforming folks. And that that makes them, that opens up a whole field of conversation about what it is that we're asking for, what kinds of demands we need to make, mm-hmm. um, and how we organize too, mm-hmm. right? Um, and where we organize. And in this book, you also so the cover, like we said earlier, it says police violence against Black women and women of color. But you've mentioned um, that you also talk about gender nonconforming and trans folks in this book as well. And you specifically mention Kai Peterson, a Black trans man, um, who's imprisoned right now for self-defense basically um another example of survived and punished so can you talk a little bit about kai's case um like where it's at now and how his story and other stories of of trans and gender non-conforming people fit into this book first of all i say on page one you know when i talk about women i that is emphatically and unequivocally and uh indisputably inclusive of trans women like we're not even having that conversation right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. so every time you i I really want readers every time they see the word women um in the book to to visualize and include trans women in that conversation and then you'll see in the introduction i had a little fight with myself about what to do about trans men (laughs) and so and 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 i struggled because i feel like in all the work that is centering the experiences of black men and men of color as i keep saying they never imagine the black men and men of color to be trans men Mm -hmm. like kai peterson Mm -hmm. um and no one is writing about the experiences or thinking about the experiences of trans men and i also shared um drafts of the book with my good friend gabriel arkless who also challenged me back and was like hello it's like crushing that there's nothing about Mm -hmm. trans men in here and I also felt like it's a violation of trans men's gender identity. I don't want to do violence to trans men's gender identity by shoehorning them into a book that's about women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I feel like then I'm, even though police police trans men often as if they are women, right? Because they're committing violence to their gender identity. So I wrestled with it back and forth and ended up including, you know, some discussion of Mm -hmm. uh, and some stories of trans men like Kai Peterson's uh, making a commitment to Gabriel and to myself and to others that I would write something um, more expansive about trans men's experiences of policing. Um, But Kai's case felt important to talk about because because Kai's life matters, (laughs) period. Um, And... um, but also, and also because um, it was about police responses to violence mm-hmm. and how police are just incapable of perceiving trans men as um, targets of violence in many of the same ways that they are incapable of, ex- of seeing black women as legitimate survivors of violence, um, quote unquote. And, uh, and then trans and gender identity uh, just accentuates that, deepens that, worsens that. Mm -hmm. So, and then what I feel like is so hard about Kai's story is that Kai knew that and tried to then account for it or work around it or, or act in light of the fact that he knew that if he went to the police and said, 
I've been raped and I killed this person in self-defense that they wouldn't believe him. Mm. And so tried to figure out some other solution, <laughs> which, you know, led to the same result because the system is set up to police race and gender in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Kai was raped by someone and um, uh, killed them in self-defense and uh, then concealed their death. And uh, when the police came, um, you know, went for a rape kit and everything sort of lined up with Kai's story of self-defense and somehow the police like instead projected on this story of like luring somebody mm. into, you know, committing a sexual act and then trying to rob them because again, I was saying earlier, like gender nonconformity yeah. is read as just mm -hmm. deviant sexuality and deviant yep. sexual acts and which and connects back to queer injustice. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, and tricking people yes. into doing things <laughs> and then, you know, uh, robbing them and then harming them in this deviant way that queers are always about, you know, literally killing straight people because, you know, that's what uh, deviant sexual is supposed to be about. I mean, so um, even though, and obviously folks who are enacting this narrative are not differentiating between gender identity and sexual mm -hmm. orientation, right? Mm -hmm. They're just, everything is queer and yeah. quote unquote deviant. Um, so that's what happened in his case is that they instead projected the story, even though all the scientific evidence, mm -hmm. all of his testimony, um, you know, lined up with, with the truth, his truth of what happened, um, they projected another story onto it, um, which led to him uh, taking a plea because he was afraid of doing even more time under the story that they were um, selling to mm -hmm. the criminal legal system, um, and now fighting for his life and freedom. And um, yeah. it's certainly a fight that I'm supportive of and want to do everything I can to, yeah. to help lift up. Yeah. Oh, Pinky Shear, his partner, will actually be at the Black and Pink National Gathering um, next weekend, so, well, this will come out August 7th, so the national gathering will already be over, but <laughs> she will be there, and, and I, I think she's going to be speaking to um, Kai's current situation right now, um, and just talking about abolishing prisons. Right. Yeah. No, I was lucky yeah. to meet Pinky at yeah. the Survived and Punished gathering at the yeah. AMC also, so, yeah. yeah. Briefly, then, I think history is really important, and you, you when you were just giving your overview of the book, you... you you briefly summarize that opening chapter, but I think, it, um, I won't preface this, but just can you go in a little bit more in depth about uh, the roots of this, right? The, uh, this isn't just something that, yeah, I think this gets at why reform doesn't work, um, but how are the roots of the tree that is the police and the PIC? Um, uh, the DNA is, is, is sexist and, and homophobic and transphobic and all these things. How is this embedded into the system of policing? All these things that we're seeing today, right? Mm -hmm. That we're hearing in Kai's case and the woman in Washington Park and Rakia, right? All, how is that? Anyone could have guessed this 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, because 500 years ago, right? Years ago. Um, no, no, I'm just, I'm going, I'm like, I suddenly had to do math for myself. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, 500 years ago, the first police forces were, in fact, the colonial armies that showed up here to commit genocide and steal this land. And the kind of um, vigilante uh, militias that they uh, spawned and, and uh, acquiesced to. And those forces um, committed tremendous violence against Native women, sexual violence and sexual, just really brutal sexualized violence that was about... Um, Yes, of course, de-womanizing uh, Native women um, as part of the project of uh, stealing this land and, and dehumanizing indigenous people and, and stealing the land that women had a particular role in, in protecting um, in some indigenous cultures. And so, um, and that sexual violence was an integral part of that because you had to erase indigenous people in order to steal their land. And one way to do that was to rape them and have them have children who were mixed and then go forward, right? So. Um, so that's integral to the foundation of this country. Police violence against indigenous women is foundational to this country. And then we saw it last summer. Well, I was in the middle of writing this book and then spending my time on Twitter watching what was happening at Standing Rock, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just, um, it's like a one thread, right? I could just yeah. see the thread running straight through there. And the same, we all know p police forces in their modern form, you know, originated from slave patrols um, in the South. And so those slave patrols were about rounding up black uh, and African-descended women and enforcing the same kinds of plantation justice and sexual violence that, plantation injustice and sexual violence that were being visited on African-descended women in, on, under slavery, and then maintaining that system after slavery was abolished through the criminal legal system. Um, 
And similarly, you know, the, the ways in which borders have been policed have always been implicitly gendered. Um, the first immigration law was actually about keeping out people who were framed as quote-unquote prostitutes. Um, and interestingly, they passed the law to exclude Asian women because in their minds, Asian women and quote-unquote people engaged in prostitution were the same. Mm -hmm. So they thought they could, you know, get two birds with one stone, to use that terrible expression. Um, and... And this border has always been enforced on women's bodies, literally, through sexual violence, through physical violence, through exclusion, through um, profiling, et cetera. And so it's no surprise that immigration raids result in police violence against women, that the Muslim ban is being enforced in ways that are about brutal violence against uh, Muslim women at the airports, and, and then that feed brutal police violence against Muslim women in communities, and so on. Um, and the other concept that I spend a lot of that sort of ends up being a, a somewhat central architecture in the book is the notion of controlling narratives that Patricia Hill Collins articulated in um, Black Feminist Thought, which is that the images that are produced historically about black women in service of chattel slavery and white supremacy and anti-blackness, of indigenous women that are produced in the service of colonialism and so on, um, just continue to be deeply entrenched and they kind of transform and transmogrify based on conditions and suddenly it's about welfare mother as opposed to Jezebel but they're mm -hmm. kind of the same and you know and and they're literally what how they're how police see behavior um and and just our very existence right so the woman that you were meeting with in in your community um, a white woman dressed the same, standing on the corner, looking the same, police officer is just going to see different things mm -hmm. yeah. um, in those two people. And I'm not saying that to say that, oh, it's all about implicit bias and we just have to retrain people. I'm saying that those narratives are so deeply entrenched in our society that there's no way that we can reform our way out of them, mm -hmm. that we have to fundamentally transform our society mm -hmm. um, to achieve that. So that's the lesson of history. Okay. Okay, so the, the next question that I have is around, um, so at the Lit Review, we think, I mean, this is birthed out of uh, a concern around accessibility, mm -hmm. right? And, and uh, loving books and thinking that books are important, but also concerned about um, accessibility and what that means in a world where you have schools getting shut down, people don't know how to read, people don't have time to read, people can't buy books, all these things. Um, so I'm wondering who you wrote this book for and how you are trying to make it accessible to a wider range of audiences. Maybe with things that I might do later as a middle school teacher. Well, <laughs> first of all, I wrote it for you mm -hmm. and for you and for all the people listening. Um, I really try very hard in my writing to not get bogged down in academic language. I feel like I am incapable of reading Judith Butler and... I really can't. Yeah, I've tried can't. multiple times. Tried. They're on my shelf. Uh, Gayatri Spivak. I've tried reading all of them. I cannot. <laughs> so I will just confess right now, I have never read Foucault. Yeah, I've read critiques Foucault. of Foucault. So I've read I've one re Foucault book. It was, I don't know, remember any of it. So. <laughs> um, I do remember slogging through Das Kapital when I was 14 because I felt like it was my revolutionary imperative to do that. And, <laughs> and then I just, I can't. Yeah. So I don't want to write books that I can't read and that others can't read. Yeah. So I really tried very hard to write it in language that broke concepts down in ways mm -hmm. that we can all understand. I hope I was successful. Um, also, I discovered late in the process that there's going to be an audiobook. Oh, cool. So there's an wow. audiobook. That's awesome. And it's yeah. being read by, get this, Bonnie Turpin. Have you, have you seen <laughs> I don't Donna? Know okay, <laughs> oh God, see, I'm Sorry, old school. I wanted to be excited for okay. that. Yay. Old school, old school. Um, Bonnie <laughs> Turpin was in Daughters of the Dust. Oh, okay. That Yellow I know. Mary That's cool. I, so, is okay. reading my book. Yeah, amazing! Congratulations. <laughs> so, I know it's a very important movie. Well, it it also just to me. I mean, at first it was a little odd to hear someone else reading stuff right. that is like a voice in my head. Right. Um, but I'm just so grateful that she's doing yeah. it, and I'm just so in awe of her as a person, actor. And she also started this great um, food Fun. place in. Um, Lambert Park that I've actually been to that's like really delicious. It's like really healthy food and it's a really great community space. And then, uh, yeah, I'm working with a fantastic advisory group of which you wow. and the young people <laughs> at Asada's Daughters are part um, and other educators, popular educators, um, activists, survivors of police violence, family members of, survivor, of people who do not survive police violence um, uh, and activists generally. 
um, are helping to break the concepts of the book down in a study guide that will be out in December. And that's also to make it readable for middle school students. Because someone asked me the other day, they were like, so, you know, what do you think about middle, middle school students reading? And I was like, no, 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 right? right? Yeah. I don't, but then I'm like, but they're living it right. as, right. as exemplified by chapter four. So mm -hmm. why wouldn't they read mm -hmm. about how their experiences fit into a larger scheme? So the, so the, it's about breaking down some of these concepts like controlling narratives or intersectionality or the criminalizing webs that we were talking about and the different kinds of ways of policing. It's about um, sharing tips for self-care when reading the book. Mm. Um, one of the people I'm working with, uh, working on it with, was saying that she was reading the book on a plane and she got really nauseous all of a sudden. Mm. And I just mm. was like, I don't want, I want people to be able to figure out where and how to read it in mm. a way that will not harm them further, right? Mm. Um, so. If anybody has any other suggestions about how I can make the book more accessible, please send them my way because I feel like the conversation is what's important, not the form, and I just want to support it happening in whatever way I can. Well, that sounds like a lot more than yeah. a lot of other people are doing. So exactly. I think you're, yeah. Trying. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I have a question. It's a, I think it'll be a quick question. I just want to ask it. So in Miriam's forward, she mentions how sharing these stories um, of, of police violence against black women and women of color is a form of resistance, right? Um, and how this needs to be grounded in our communities, sharing these stories. So what does it mean when, um, when journalists and advocates share these stories? Like, what is, what is the impact versus for, for that? Like, I, I was talking to Debbie earlier, thinking about, like, the Laquan McDonald video. When that came out, like, the family did not want that to come out. Like, his mother did not want that out. But thinking about the impact that it actually made, right, and where we're at now with that, and so I'm just interested in what you you would say about sort of like this third person um, sharing of these stories. I mean, those are questions I ask myself too, mm -hmm. right? Because I didn't, I don't know all the people whose right, stories right. I talk about in the book, and so I also <laughs> the other fight I have lots of fights with myself, as you can tell. <laughs> um, so the fight or struggle I had with myself was yeah. like how graphically to do it, yeah. how how if I'm not in community with someone or in a community. Um, how much am I contributing to sensationalizing something if I tell a story in a particular way? How much am I reproducing violence as opposed to simply unmasking it um, or highlighting it or lifting it up? I had a lot of conversations with um, a lot of people uh, who helped write this book, one of whom was Adrian Marie Brown, who um, wrote Emergent Strategy, who you all talked about. We love Adrian Marie Brown. <laughs> episode 21. Well, you would not be looking at this book right now if it weren't for Adrian Marie Aww. Brown. She was a doula of this book. Wow. And, um, and we talked a lot about, you know, and came down on being radically honest, not shying away from things, not, not papering over a violence that has already been papered over but really trying to do it in a way, um, Sarah Haley also really influenced me in this respect where she talks about, you know, the historical record is really dry, but she tries to find some context around the stories of the women she talks about so so that she can breathe some life into them and make them some in some way three-dimensional. Yeah. And so I tried to do that. Um, where I did know family members or people who were I was talking about, I sent them the descriptions. Some of them came back with like lots of, you know, corrections. Like, no, do not talk about my daughter that way. No, I don't describe my daughter that way, or this is not how she would describe herself, or et cetera. So I, f and, but there were also lots of women who I don't know. Um, and I just did my best to lift up the, their voices when I could, the voices mm -hmm. of their family members, mm -hmm. and to just include descriptions of who they were beyond the moment of their violation. Mm. Um, so I hope journalists can do the same. I yeah. hope they don't just kind of go to the sensational. You know, the this past week, um, the New York Times published an op-ed that I wrote, which I was shocked that they published and grateful that they published it and really happy about it. And it has the shocking title, right? And really queasy about the title. Yeah. Because um, one, I wanted to make clear, and as soon as it came out, I tweeted and kept tweeting, yeah. like, this is not about privileging having a vagina. Yep. Like, mm -hmm. I, you can, a cop can get a warrant to search any body right. cavity. Right. People who don't have vaginas experience very degrading and violating searches on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It was not about that, but that was what they, they picked it out, they right? picked, Oh, I yeah. did not pick yeah. that. I, suggest, <laughs> I suggested something much different yeah. um yeah. Yeah. and and so yeah i think that that bordered on i think they were trying to say they want clicks well they wanted clicks but i think they were also really trying to say this is some serious stuff mm -hmm. here and i think the women who i was working with were genuinely mm -hmm. appalled by what was being described mm -hmm. and really wanted attention yes they didn't want attention i think at least the women i was working with i don't think they were doing it to sell papers mm -hmm. i think they wanted mm -hmm. attention because they felt like these issues were shocking right. and they wanted attention and that's they the, want people to open it right yeah. and that yeah. was the 
tension, right? And then thankfully in the print edition, they put a different title on. <laughs> um, but it's one that people will likely skip over, right? Mm-hmm. It's called it's like Female Victims of the War on Drugs. People will be like, wah, wah. like it's right. just, you know, so which, I fe- which is the title is, wh- what is the title online? Uh, I don't want to say Okay, that. cool. All right. <laughs> but it's, you'll find it online. <laughs> um, but I think that, uh, so I feel like that's, yeah. that's the tension, right? Yeah. What yeah. do you say to make people read it versus what do you say in ways that then invisibilize other people's experiences, mm-hmm. like people who don't have vaginas, right. but who experience very similar forms of police violence right. or, um, or that just then kind of reproduce a pornography of abuse, right? Yeah. And, or why, and yeah, why Laquan's family, I feel like it's also about respecting what families want and didn't want, right? Mm-hmm. And people don't want you to talk about it or reference it in a particular way than trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Where are we at with time? Pause. We're at 58. Okay. So the, the two that I have, so the one, one of them was just, because it was on here, but I think we, I think you've, we're good in terms of what did you learn from writing this book, unless mm-hmm. you have something you want to say. The other is um, defining intersectionality in feminism. <laughs> and I don't, that was, but I didn't want to, yeah, so I don't know if you even want to answer that because we didn't prepare you, and I could not do that on the spot. Yeah. And you're doing it in the study guide, so. Right. Know. I mean, I think intersectionality. Okay. You can't wait, you yeah. can't okay. Do you want to, do you want do you to want answer question. those questions? Yes. And do we have time for it? I will yeah, do yeah, it yeah. I can, uh, okay. I can edit it down. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so my last question before, uh, if you have any others, but um, is I'm, I'm wondering if you can just um, define as succinctly as you can these terms that have come up um, and that I think this book uh, talks through, uh, which are intersectionality and feminism. What do those words mean to you? I think particularly in the context of this book, intersectionality um, meant recognizing that women, black women, experience policing as black people and as women, and that there's a gendered, ex- racially gendered experience and often racially gendered um, intersecting with other identities, disability, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, poverty, etc. Um, have experiences of policing that are informed by all of those things. So it's not like oh, she was mistaken for a black man and that's why she experienced that police violence or, oh, that's only gender-based violence because it's actually all of those things. And it felt like applying an intersectional analysis to policing was really important given kind of the one-dimensional look we've had at it uh, for most of the time I've been alive and part of this conversation. Um, And for me, feminism, the challenge to feminism in this book is um, the pick and choose approach to violence, right? Like we'll only look at certain kinds of violence and we won't look at police violence, particularly because we've invested in the police to address this other kind of violence. Mm-hmm. So we can't look at police violence because that would call into question this other strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, feminism, black feminism says, oh no, we're gonna look at state violence, interpersonal violence, the relationship between the two, and we're not gonna go for solutions that, that increase violence against any mm-hmm. person who is female identified or trans or gender nonconforming, um, or anyone, frankly, because I think feminism is far more inclusive <laughs> um, <laughs> in many ways. So I feel like those are what those concepts mean in relation to the book. Mm-hmm. And I know you've touched on it throughout our talk about like the things that you have learned from this book and, and, and what you're putting out there into the world um, around these stories, but what did you learn from writing this book? Like, what has your strategy changed around challenging police violence against women of color and, and black women? Um, or is there is there something that you like feel like you missed in this book? Or just like, yeah, what did, what did I, probably a lot, I know, but like, just like how, how has your, um, your strategy and, and, and thought and, and theory of change changed since writing this book? Um, first of all, I just want to say writing books is a really painful thing, y'all, because, oh, you know, you, you put it out and then at some point it's just done, right? Yeah. Like, and they, they will not accept any more edits. <laughs> I feel like I push those limits a lot with mm-hmm. Beacon. Um, and, uh, and at some point they're just like, no, you're done. And then you're like, no, but I just had this really brilliant thought, actually. And, and actually I was completely wrong about this, all this other thing. And they're like, yeah, sorry, it's gone to the printer. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, I almost can't read it now because mm-hmm. I'm like afraid I'm going to see another thing. I could also personally write 10 super principled critiques of this book right now that I would wholeheartedly agree with. And so that's why I'm, I want that to be the part of the conversation. Yeah. This is not the end, it's the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I would say I learned new cases, I learned new information, I learned a lot more about policing of of people with disabilities or people with perceived disabilities. 
Um, I really challenged myself to really search for more about the experiences of Indigenous women because there's very little out there. I feel like this book sort of represents in some ways a culmination of what I knew as of whenever the final version went in. Um, and I hope that I'll continue to learn and grow. Um, so I think that my knowledge always, every time I have a conversation, including this one, my knowledge um, of these issues or my analysis or my thoughts around these issues deepen, but I can't really point to any particular thing. Um, but before we go, I do want to just lift up how much of Chicago is in this book. Yes. It's like, it's a little bit of love letter to Chicago also, oh. right? So the cover is yes. Chicago, right? Yes, um, Janae Bonsu. Janae Bonsu, photography by Sarah Jane Ree, photographer <laughs> oh, of the yeah. movements. Yes, photographer of the movements. There's also- The people's Mary camera. Mary. Exactly. Um, and there's also many, um, several photos that she took uh, in the book also. There's a photo Sarah? spread. Yeah. So, for instance, shout out to Sarah. Exactly, and this is a picture of you know BYP 100 Chicago shutting down the the mm -hmm. police services. Oh, and commission. there's oh, it's Rachel. Exactly. And there's and there's work by Romy Torico, who is yes. an amazing yes. artist. Yes. Uh, it's a portrait of Jesse Hernandez. Exactly. Exactly. Work by Micah. Oh, exactly. This book. Yes. See, right? It's really I was really excited about the pictures in the middle because yes. for the accessibility yeah. thing, but yes. also because I literally wanted to substitute into the popular imagination into the images that we already have of police violence, literally mm -hmm. show women in those situations, yes. right? So this is the Rodney King image, but that's also Marlene Pinnock, right? Mm. And you know, this is what we think of, this is a picture of a woman being pushed over the hood of a car by two police mm. officers. That's what we think of as policing generally. Well, there's a black woman in that situation, mm. right? Um, and then, yeah, the resistance chapter, there's a lot about the amazing work that has been done here around the Rakia campaign. Um, and uh, I think that was an inspiration. I think what I did learn from the book is just like what this organizing can look like in ways that I never imagined possible. Mm. To, to see someone dropping a banner at a White Sox game, I just, I <laughs> never imagined. Yeah. And, and whatever we think about that strategy, yeah. but like I just, in all the 20 years of working on these issues, that's never happened. Do you yeah. understand? Like yeah. no one's that ever dropped a hard. banner at a game, <laughs> you know, at a major sports game yeah. around a black woman. Yeah. It's experience of policing. And now you're about to see some projections on police precincts. Oh yeah. <laughs> like that is about to happen. All right, <laughs> consult Joey Mogul before you yeah. do that, just because in some cases. We'll consult the, the lawyers. We've yes. done it with words. We've done it with words, yeah. The, yeah. the shout out to the Chicago Light Brigade. Like, totally. Yeah. Totally. They're just getting, the police are just getting more creative right. in how they no, charge no, 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 people oh, yeah. Yeah. for yeah, light yeah. pollution right. and crap oh like that. So, yes. They're so petty, y'all. Yes. Oh so, yes. But anyway, there's there's lots in here about Chicago. There's lots of Chicago cases. Um, Mariam takes it back in her foreword to the, you know, civil rights era. But... Yeah, that was something that I did. I was like, it's been burning in my mind. Like, this reminds me so much of how the, the birth of the civil rights movement is rooted in the defense of black women against sexual yep. violence. Yep. Right? Like, exactly. Yes. It's the only way that you exactly. have to okay. Exactly. Right? Just so. Exactly. We have to do that work. If we, if the civil rights movement is your inspiration, like, we have to build then you, then, the defense of black women. Then right? you have to read yeah. chapter uh, one. Because <laughs> then you'll see that and actually. Two and two and two. Was, oh, yeah. All yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. So that. Um, yeah, Chicago. Yeah. It's a book about Chicago and, and how um, excited I am by the organizing that's been happening here, too. Well, we're, we're close to the time. Um, so this this episode, I want to do a few closing mentions on some upcoming events. If you are in Chicago, the most amazing city in the world, um, <laughs> on Saturday, August 12th, uh, we will be saying, sadly, be saying goodbye to um, a really powerful woman and organizer, a Palestinian freedom fighter, um, and a friend to many, Rasmia O'Day. And so she... Um, if you don't know, you should look her up. And she is uh, being deported after many, many years of struggle. Um, and there's a call to, to join the AAAN for an evening of music and culture and struggle to honor us, Nia. And there's going to be a keynote address by Angela Davis. So the, the doors are going to open at 6, and the program will start at 7. There are tickets that are still available online as of, what is it, Friday, 7.15. But for sure, this is going to sell out very, very soon. And so you should probably get them as soon as possible. And you can get them now via the Free Arrest Me and Now Facebook page. Also, 
on Thursday, August 17th. If you want to meet the amazing Andrea Ritchie, Woo! which you do, you just, yeah, you definitely do, you should go to Women and Children's First Bookstore. She's, uh, Andrea will be there doing an author reading for the book that we just discussed. And again, the title is Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. And that event is going to be at 7.30 p.m. at Women and Children First, which is at 5233 North Clark Street and Andersonville. And you should buy books while you're there. Yeah. And we'll have a very special guest because my mom is oh, coming oh, in. The event. Mom. Oh my God. Yeah. You've got to be there. Yeah, I'll be there. Be, yeah, be I will definitely be there. Yeah. Cool. Oh, and then, <laughs> right. So uh, we close each episode, as you know, with uh, our guest reading a favorite quote or passage from the book. And I always think it's interesting to see what the author picks when we yes. read the authors. So um, if you would uh, close this out with your favorite words. Okay, hopefully you can cut parts of it if it's too long. Um, but it's literally the last uh, from the last two pages of the book. So it's talking about the experiences described in the book and saying that these experiences can also begin to inform our responses to the question of what is necessary to achieve genuine and sustainable safety for women of color as we resist increased policing, surveillance, militarization, criminalization, detention, deportation, and incarceration. For instance, beyond eliminating all collaboration between immigration enforcement and local law enforcement without exception, and establishing safe spaces for undocumented immigrants, these stories tell us that true safety for women of color requires an end to the war on drugs, to broken windows policing, to the war on terror, to the elimination of gender as a marker of access to public space, to public benefits and protection, the removal of police from schools, hospitals, public housing, and healthcare settings, and the repeal of mandatory arrest and other policies that facilitate the criminalization of survivors of violence, and support, rather than violence and criminalization, for pregnant people and mothers of color. Ultimately, the stats and stories in this book expose the reality of policing in America and the interests in racially gendered and class power relations it's structured to protect. These truths are especially relevant as the nation's political climate swings towards increased fear-mongering and even more blatant and virulent racism, which will, in turn, lead to greater surveillance, control, criminalization, exclusion, and mass incarceration of women of color. We can no longer be complicit in the notion that we can achieve safety through policing, particularly in this climate. Thus, instead of asking how can we reform policing to keep women safe, we should ask what do women need to be safe? How can the billions spent on policing go instead to resources such as safe and affordable housing, health care, education, living wage employment, child care, and mental health treatment? Our charge is to envision and build a world without police and without the values that produce policing and punishment. It's a world premised on what Angela Y. Davis terms abolition feminism, a world based on radical freedom, mutual accountability, and passionate reciprocity. In this society, safety and security will not be premised on violence or the threat of violence. It'll be based on collective commitment to guaranteeing the survival and care of all peoples. Unfortunately, there's no 10-point plan to get there, but each of us can contribute to the conversations, dreams, and visions we need to find the way. Let's get free. another episode of the lit review a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement we are your co-hosts monica trinidad and Paige may two chicago-based organizers special shout out to the lit review's very own sponsor the arcus center for social justice leadership out of kalamazoo college keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next monday same time same place want to hear about a specific book email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on facebook and if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at LitReviewShy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.